0: Sin Carriers: A West Side Fairy Tale Story contains violent, graphic, and often unsettling content. Further, it takes place in a period of American history where certain now unacceptable outlooks were commonplace. In the spirit of pulling back the lid on the mythos of the American Wild West, many of these outlooks are espoused by various characters, whether outright or through their internal dialogue. These characters' thoughts and actions are their own, and not those of the author. Listener discretion is advised. to become an ally of convenience through those two great american mainstays racism and misogyny facility found not even guests like him were allowed into the forward vip cars of the train he also explained his unique armor to moira and cemented their relationship as friends garvey was irritated by Vaught dragging him from a violent reverie sue and gato shared a moment where it was clear the tall man knew more about sue than she would have expected including the odd cards she was given by the doomsayer Tolliver slept fitfully following the ambush, dreaming of the rough childhood treatment he received from his brother, Gulliver. Mr. Vaught informed Tolliver he was expected to dine with a Mr. Belial, who awaits them in the next town. Worried about Belial's intentions, Tolliver ordered Vaught to recruit the pretty, if violent, woman working on the security detail as Moira's undercover bodyguard. We were better introduced to Miskell, Coventry, and Don Bishop, who was rooting for Miskell to pull his own rotten tooth. They and the rest of the driver soon witnessed Sue give the boot to a rude and deserving Colt Wickless. The fracas is interrupted by another driver, great Cutting, preventing any further violence, though it is clear Wiggless's grudge has grown perilously deep. Mr. Vaught led Sue to the front of the train, where she negotiated a fee for protecting Moira with Tulliver, much to the latter's chagrin. Sue accepts, and Moira is tasked with cleaning the woman, and preparing fitting clothing for Belial's reception. Bereft of her clothing, the myriad scars on Sue's body are revealed, and in turn, so is some of her past. On this episode of Sin Carriers, Elam comes across a curio that reminds him of his painful past. Sue finds herself more comfortable than expected in the clothes she's borrowed from Moira. Vassily takes what he believes is a great personal risk. Vicky tries to make a sale and receives an invitation from an extremely odd man. Gato interrupts a meeting between Wickless and Coakley, and Garvey indulges. What new mysteries await in this odd town in the strange Lord Belial's mansion? Will our travelers be safe separated from each other, or will this distance be their undoing? With more of the wood unloaded, will its draw be lessened on those weak to its influence, or has the damage already been done? You may find the answers to these questions and more on this, the eighth episode of Sin Carriers Town. It lay like an offering in the hallowed bowl of a saint's hands out there in the deep desert where no town had any right to be. People eking out a living on coal, copper, and sheep's milk had built up a town of thousands. Businesses and then houses led in lines from the four-sparred station to a shadowed mansion, gardened with palms and windowed with colored glass that danced back the last lights of the setting sun. All was orange, and what was not orange was pale and dark and sooted to a frost by the roaring blast furnace set beside the tracks. Steel Forge... Coakley said, though nobody had asked. The remaining six able drivers stood paces apart along the railing outside the horse cart. Once they finished unloading, they had the night to themselves in town. A cheerier bunch might have spent these long moments staring each other into greater and greater depravities, but a stifling ugliness had fallen over each of them. Any of aliens ever been here before? Coakley asked. His question hadn't broken the ice, or even cracked it. The others muttered and failed to answer. I don't even know this rail line, Garvey finally said. He had dangled his leg over the bar in front of him in his curious way, tangling up his legs and resting inside his own skin like it was a chair. The shape of him caused Coakley's hip bones to itch. Tug a junction before that last town that I don't know. "'Usually this route goes farther south. "'Or you take the north lines up in the cattle country. "'We're about to run smacking into those mountains after this, "'and there's only a few passes.' "'Which one we headed to?' Wickless asked. "'His face was red and scuffed from where the woman had beat on him. "'He flipped a fat little bullet over and over in his hands as he spoke. No him?' Garvey said. None of my concern anyhow. Nor yours. He entangled himself from the railing and shifted his hips to loosen them. Trains go where they go. His departure came along with the docking whistle. And that settled the conversation. And is there anything else I might do for you, gentlemen? Vicky asked. "'flipping the notebook page up and down "'as though he might air out another errand for himself. "'The other men, Ducky, Elam, and the priest, "'exchanged looks amongst themselves and shrugged. "'That's it, as far as I'm concerned,' Ducky said. "'The others spoke in agreement. "'He seemed to think of something and looked at them. "'Y'all don't really mind doing our laundry together? "'Mine with yours, that is?' The others shook their heads, and he turned back to Vicky. That's it, then, he said. Vicky smiled, looked at his list, and then scanned over top the others to Gato. The lanky man seemed smaller than normal, and was curled up inside his poncho. I suppose this is the last time I can ask you before I leave, Mr. Gato. Are you sure you don't need any errands run while I'm in town? Gato turned toward them and yawned. Running a tongue over his sharp, white incisors. What would you bring? The gato was everything. He asked, somewhat seriously. I'm I'm not sure. Vicky said. Gato made him terribly, terribly nervous. The arrival whistle howled and the deck shifted abruptly below him. They had arrived then. Gato looked Vicky over and then winked. You bring me a big, fat rat then, okay? He asked, turning over and going back to sleep. Vicky looked at him for a long second before turning back to the others, smiling and rolling the collective laundry basket over his shoulder. Well, I'm off then, he said. Lord, I look like three a thousand dollars sue said turning in front of the mirror and taking a long look at her own backside god damn i hope they bury me in this dress moira sighed and bounced back and forth on her toes a few times sue had been admiring herself in the mirror for a good five minutes now both with and without the hat moira had loaned her as she watched Sue picked up her skirts and flipped her hat down in a low bow Moira thought would deposit the woman straight on her face. But her dip rolled into a curve and her posture opened like a flower. Her hat swung low to flutter beside her right calf. Oh, you just called me Sue, sir. Sue said, affecting a posh southern accent. You want to find out the rest you need on this day interesting and available. Some of her normal posture returned, and she squared the narrow, red hat like a cattle rancher, lowering the front over her nose. Then she turned to Moira, and the younger woman couldn't help but match her smile. "'You really do look amazing,' Moira said. It wasn't a lie in the least. In fact, she was almost jealous of how well Sue wore the borrowed and, until now unworn, dress. It was ostensibly a white dress, though done over with so much red affectation it seemed to grow scarlet. The bust cut a generous square across Sue's chest, where delicate crimson roses lay against her chestnut brown skin. Her skirts fell down to her shins, draping just over the tops of the black, lamb-leather boots Moira had loaned her. They were her old riding boots, in fact, which she hadn't worn in years but had packed, just in case, on this trip boots didn't, really hadn't, fit Moira for some time now. They were only a size too small, but somehow perfect for Sue. The dress, which she'd gotten in a parcel from her Uncle Gulliver and never worn, clung no less snug than a glove to Sue's body. The only thing Moira didn't have to lend was a bustier, as Sue was too small for all of Moira's undergarments. It was fairly surprising, actually just how small Sue actually was outside of her bulky work clothes. Wayfish would maybe be the best word to describe her. She didn't seem to have an ounce of fat to spare, and only came up to Moira's eyes and height. Though once Sue opened her mouth, the woman seemed to all but double in size. Oh, you're too nice, she said. Moira could tell she'd cleaned up her accent a bit once she'd put on the dress, and she wondered if Sue had done so intentionally or not. Sue took Moira by her wrists and swung her arms side to side, looking her over as well. You're a fine piece of it too, if I do say so myself. Moira's eyes widened at the coarseness, but then Sue's expression broke and they both fell into laughter. The train whistle silenced both of them. Ah, about time, Sue said looking her arms over and plucking gently at the intricate red lacework. She'd been searching for places to hide knives on her the entire time they were dressing, which Moira had tried to forbid. Despite this, all the knives Sue had set out had vanished from the dressing table beside the mirror. Moira felt her head swimming again, not for the first time since she'd awoken in Mr. Tavarish's facilities. care. It wasn't unlike standing up too fast after sitting for a long time, though nothing she could do might cause or prevent the occurrences. Or so it seemed. The haze fell over her and she found herself watching Sue's fingers intently, shadows of clouds soaring over a great, endless sea of red. Among the senseless curlicues a pattern emerged, crimson hands with fingers made of five lines, No marks for the palms. Sue noticed her and said something, but the words came as though through water. Vasily's knocking snapped her out of it. Ladies, I believe there's some sort of envoy here to receive you, he said. Just a minute, Sue called. Her voice was girlish, small, Moira watched as she fumbled about adjusting the soft linen headscarf her mother had made for her. Moons and stars and little suns patterned it, all of them shining in gold against the dark cloth. The girl's eyes were fearful, trying not to hear the conflagration building outside. The screams and the fire. The snow. The falling snow. A woman stood behind the girl. A shadow wreathed in a million black feathers flowing over each other like fire. One eye burned cold beneath a broad, white hat. Hey now, Sue said. The girl had gone. Sue, the woman, had an arm around Moira's waist and had taken her left wrist, almost as though she intended them both to dance. Moira blinked and looked into Sue's eyes. Nothing but concern. The image of the little girl in the headscarf vanished. You took a tumble there, Moira. Moons and stars and suns. Moira almost said, but she managed to keep her mouth shut. Sue gave her a curious look and then made as if to let her go. Moira nodded and Sue stepped away. They really rung your bell, huh? She asked. Moira sighed and nodded, not knowing what else to say. In her heart, she could feel something tugging at her. It came with the smell, the feel, of oily chains sliding over half-rotted wood. "'I think I'll be fine,' she said. "'Well, whenever you think you're not, just remember I'm right here with you,' Sue said, reaching out and shaking Moira's hand. "'I'll get you out in a jiffy, okay?' "'Okay.' Moira said softly Thank you Wow, what a great story But I have no fucking idea what's going on in it to you Maybe it'd be a little easier to understand if I had access to a a written version of the show To follow along with and read back through Maybe even something I don't know behind the story information to clear up some of my, my fucking questions oh wait right there yes <laughs> it says right there join the west side fairy tales patreon today and get access to behind the story audio programs and fully laid out chapters of this story scars in time and most of the west side fairy tales back catalog for just five measly dollars a month wow what a deal Oh, it even says here you can get special merch packs and signed posters if you give a a, a more generous donation. Uh, that means he needs your money, people. This isn't a fucking charity. Okay, go to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales today and subscribe for excellent behind-the-story content and more. That's patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. Link is in the description. Don't forget to watch my show if it's for... Ah, come on! I'm not doing this for free! Now back to our story, already in progress. Silly waited until the women were out in the hallway to try talking. The idea he’d at first thought of as selfless and kind now seemed overly impressive, almost romantic, which was not the impression he intended to make. Moira was, of course, far, far too young for him in the first place and not his type to boot. She was, however, an extremely invigorating young woman and unreservedly kind. She deserves nice things, old man, he whispered to himself in his head. Some other half-formed thought tried to join this first and failed. He itched at the little envelope in his breast pocket. She will think you are trying to woo her, you ancient idiot, he continued. Moira will think nothing of the sort. A deeper, better voice said. It was his but tinged with the chords of Yumiko's speech. She had been young as well, but he hadn't pursued her in the least. Their marriage was a joining of two rivers which would always have flowed into those cold, arctic waters. Moira was his friend. It was acceptable to give friends simple gifts. "'It's not simple, you old dog,' his mind said. "'You worked on it for hours.' It's disgraceful how much attention you're pouring on this young woman. She could be your daughter, and so you should treat her as you would a daughter, his better voice said. He dabbed sweat off his face. He could feel his entire body shaking with the effort of merely standing there. Moira smiled at him and tapped his arm twice, taking a deep breath and adjusting her hair over the black sutures in her cheek. What will you say? Huh, dog? Will you say she's beautiful and ask to tie it on her face? Will you smell her hair and let your thumb linger on her skin? You are despicable. You are a disgrace. They will all know how foolish and small and reaching you are when she rebuffs you. Vasily. now is the time. His better voice said, Moira, he blurted. Both women jumped. Fuck a duck, man, Sue said, looking around wide-eyed. She held her hand over her heart. Vasily opened his mouth and then turned and covered it, coughing. I I am sorry, he muttered. So very sorry. Uh, Please forgive me. Soft hands on his elbow calmed his heart. They pulled at him, and he breathed and looked at Moira's face. Her smile was soft and kind, a perfect counterpoint to the ugliness on her cheek. He swallowed and tried to catch his breath. She nodded, needing not say anything. I made you a... Vasily said, trying to force himself not to stutter or stall. He pulled the trifle from his pocket and handed it to her. She gave the embroidered red spider and the limp white cloth a confused look. She hates it, the hurtful voice said. It is sweaty and hot with your old man body heat. It probably stinks like you. Stinks like coffee and decades of worthless thoughts. If your father was here, he'd step in to let everybody know how fucking stupid you are. Explain yourself, his better voice said. She'll understand. It's a for your face. Vasily said. His fingers shook when he reached for her. Going to drag her into the grave, you corpse. Just breathe. Moira's expression was curious, nothing more, as he unfolded the silk and showed her. Then her eyes widened in understanding and she smiled, handed her hat to Sue, and leaned her head slightly forward. Her hair was soft and light over his fingers. Wonderful but he felt no desire for anything other than her happiness in that moment. The tying of the cords and the second when she leaned back for him to look her over. The modified handkerchief served its purpose perfectly, a rounded kite of fabric resting just over her cheekbone and covering the marks of his amateur surgery. When it was in place, she adjusted it for comfort and looked into his eyes, sighing and smiling and giving him an unexpected hug. He felt her gloved fingers digging lightly into his arms. It's perfect, Vasily. Thank you so much, she said, so voce, only for him. Then she stepped back and allowed him to admire his work. I don't look foolish, she asked, turning quickly back to Sue to get her opinion as well. The other woman pursed her lips and nodded. I'd say you look better, yeah, Sue said. She tipped her chin at Basili. Fine work, Doc. Thank you, he replied, clutching his hands together to keep from shaking. He could feel the stress of this in his arms. I am not a doctor, but, but thank you. Then he looked at Moira. You look incredible. I am sorry I do not have a handkerchief that matches your blue dress. Her fingers traced the red threadwork of the spider... He'd used that same color thread to hem the cuts he'd put in the cloth to make the ties and sides. It clashed beautifully with her powder blue dress and her eyes, which were now away from him and Sue as she thought something over. She smiled at nothing, and then at him, popping up on her toes and planting a quick, dry kiss on his cheek before stepping back. I really can't say how much I appreciate it, she said. Vaught had appeared down the hall and seemed incensed the women weren't off the train yet. Sue had adopted her more masculine posture again and was talking to the little man with her hands on her hips. Why a spider? Oh, uh, I'm sorry, Vasily said. I know most people do not like them, but they are my favorite creature. It is my adopted heraldic sign, I suppose. He spoke, looking at the ground. Now, too overwhelmed by this endeavor to look into her eyes. His simple nervousness had transcended itself into a lightness about his ears he thought might make him faint. They are Earth's first great engineers. I love them quite dearly. Then I will be happy to wear it, Moira said, taking up his hand and shaking it. He raised his eyes and they shared a smile. Then she was gone. Elam's hands wanted for nothing but the horse. He couldn't shake the sight of it, sprinting beside the train, its great, dark eyes on him as the sheer fury of the locomotive furthered the divide. Now the creature was lost to him, and he felt in that separation a greater void than any other parting had left him with. Even the ghost of his unknown parents couldn't haunt him half as well as that last... "'Soft whinny as the curve of the train took the horse from his sight forever. "'What do you have, sir? Father?' "'The man at the counter asked. "'Elam looked him over and then returned his eyes to a casual scan of the mixed shop and restaurant, "'mind only half invested in this mindless work. "'The priest settled their assignments as talker and looker, "'and Elam was the looker between the two of them. Uh, "'Nothing, son.' "'the priest said. "'His voice had lost that sadness Elam had come to associate with him. "'The only mar on their trip across the desert to the train "'had been the priest's persistent melancholy, "'which he seemed somehow both eager and reticent to share. "'He'd been a maudlin presence amongst the wonder of the horse "'and the wind and the light sweetness of water scenting the Mojave air. "'Though, actually, do you brew tea, "'we boil water.' the man said, as though this service were a miracle of modern living. Perhaps out here it is, Elam thought to himself. If you got the tea, though, we'll lend you a cup for a penny. The man was, like the building around him, worn of color and thread. Things felt thin in this town, Elam had realized, for what little he'd seen of it. Board seemed hollow, and not a single wall appeared to stop the noises on the other side of it. The shopkeeper even looked wane and lanky, a human scarecrow whipped up to mind the shop and ward off intruders. Elam fingered a line of dust off the shelf beside him, rolling it between his fingers and flicking what he'd made of it onto the ground. It disappeared into the thick, rounded gaps between the floorboards. He wondered at the depth of the space there and then sighed and moved around the shop more, taking care to move close to the windows and look after the train. The team of drivers were nothing more than shadows flitting about the flatbeds as they reconfigured the train for offloading. Ducky and that odd man, Gato, were the only security people left on board. Elam surprised himself wondering how they'd fare if the train came under attack. He hadn't expected to become so engrossed in this job, but just days after taking it, he now felt oddly at home in this lifestyle. Elam, you want anything? the priest asked. Elam looked at him and shook his head. The priest nodded and flipped the shopkeeper a penny. The light ringing seemed loud in this sad space. Elam rounded the last of the four rows of shelves and saw a display that stopped him in his tracks. Wooden planks secured to the wall held a box of dirty glass, behind which sat an assortment of heavy pistols with embossed tin grip plates. They were gaudy, carnival things with gilded and gold-stained barrels. Silverwork that made his skin crawl, depicting misshapen women and animals and the like. But the one in the center stood out from the others. Blue steel oil shine caught the light and it danced in front of Elam's eyes just as it had when that idiot had come home packing a gun. So staunchly similar to this one they looked like twins. It's the same gun, engine boy?' a voice said in his head. No doubt. His eyes narrowed as he reached toward the glass and brushed away the dust. For a moment, this window and the eye of his mind merged, and Jackie was standing in front of him in their shared room, holding out the gun and dressed in his Sunday best. A noose for a necktie. Elam felt the cold steel beneath his fingers, and then the whip crack of a rope snapping taut. Elam? click. Elam, the priest said, shaking the young man's shoulder. Elam blinked at the display case again and wiped his entire hand over it. The pistols were all the same ugly, carny bullshit, tin-handled pop guns made from uneven steel and bad punch presses. The one closest showed a caricature of an native person's head, screaming and painted in white and black stripes. He straddled a hobby horse with a body a third the size of his head. A smudge of a man in silhouette dangled from a tree in the background. Click. I'm fine, Elam said, pushing the priest's hand off his shoulder. The older man frowned. Late afternoon shadows sank in the scar on his cheek, filling the furrows with a bloody sort of ink. Elam turned away from him and looked out at the train station. I didn't ask that, the priest said. He took a breath. Good to see you are, though. He kept his tone lower than the shopkeeper might hear. You need a step outside? Elam knew something in his expression likely merited that offer, though the priest made no reference as to what. I'm fine, Elam repeated. What did he say? He tilted his head toward the shopkeeper. The priest looked over at the man, raised his hand, and ignored Elam's question. How's that water coming? He asked. The shopkeeper smiled, but didn't move. The priest smiled back and ended the conversation. Voice low, he turned back to Elam, pretending as though he was also interested in the racist pistols. Elam had noticed the others featured black Union soldiers carrying squalling bare-breasted white women away and other ignoble reinterpretations of battles from the Southern Rebellion. Nothing untoward, the priest said. Man says there ain't any new people in town save us and little news of any goings on, except local matters. Like? Elam asked. There was no fifth pistol in the case in front of him, just a set of empty, Wooden display hooks and a little spot of clean where something might have been catching dust. He took a breath and adjusted his clothing, worrying at the empty spot on his own hip. He was cagey on that front, the priest said. Apparently they don't get much in the way, visitors, and he doesn't like to gossip. Elam pointed to the empty shelves. I don't know what they'd be visiting for, he muttered. Post exchange was like this, too. That had been their first stop, the PX beside the rear train car. Ostensibly, they were running errands, but the priest's real intention was to find good ambush spots ahead of anybody else who might use them. They'd expected to have to blend in or come up with a good excuse to poke around, but the post exchange had been all but abandoned, save for a withered post boy who dragged out a mule on the off chance they'd brought mail. The man had given the priest a look no less withering when he'd asked if the town had anything outgoing to collect. Coach not, he'd said, creaking back around to the stables, mule in tow. Pan there, eh? the shopkeeper said. He dragged his foot as he approached, seemingly unable to get his knee to cooperate. He pointed to the closest pistol, showing a noble strong-jawed rebel holding a mortal wound atop a stack of blue-coated black men with bright red lips. Embossed letters over his head read, Lord save me, so I might save Dixie, and a faint confederate flag fluttered eternally behind him. That there's General Benson Grimey of the New Third Rifles, the shopkeeper said, puffing out his chest with pride. Elam saw the priest flinch at the mention of the name, But the man said nothing. He came through with his boys a few years ago now, and boy, hell, they put on a show. He poked the priest in the arm. Did you know them rebel boys never really lost the war? Corruption just rained too deep, and they had to mix up their message. Fall back to truly clean out them engines and collards. You don't see, the priest said. His voice was as low and sharp as the ringing penny he'd flipped the shopkeeper earlier. Still more, Elam could almost feel the priest flipping about inside himself, deciding on whether or not to come up heads. Yes, sir, the shopkeeper said. "Mr. Forrest's lordship came and, well, the general did put on one hell of his show, got all the boys and men out, showed us how his third rifles rolled and shot them godless heathens out the hills up in uh, Montana. The priest whipped around toward the shopkeeper so suddenly Elam thought he'd stabbed the man for how quiet he got. You don't say, the priest said. Elam could see only his back as the man advanced on the shopkeeper. His boots hummed through the meatless floorboards. I," the man started. Elam saw the priest's head shaking in a tidy rhythm. No, you don't say. The priest repeated himself. The shopkeeper, as cowed as he was confused, nodded and glanced at Elam, who merely stared at him. Let's go. Elam looked from the priest to the shocked face of the shopkeeper, shrugged, and left. Uh, Hey there, folks. If you're like me, then you love a scary story. But why settle for bargain bin big-box store blandness when you can get piping hot homemade horror delivered directly to your home? Support the West Side Fairy Tales today on Patreon, and you can get episodes like this one ad-free, as well as access to merch, ebooks, and other amazing deals. But most importantly, you'll help bring weird, original content like Sin Carriers to life. If you want more bizarre, creepy, and horrifying indie fiction, then go to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. That's patreon.com slash westsidefairytales today! Now, back to our program, already in progress. "'Well, if you are writing out all those receipts by hand, ma'am, "'then those busy fingers aren't at work making money for you!' "'Vicky said, smiling and helping himself to another of the woman's apples. "'She gave him a tired, washed-out smile "'and tilted her head to shout orders at the gaggle of young women "'running the back of the laundry. "'Any other time, Vicky would demure "'and let her out of this uncomfortable situation. "'He would, in fact.' Relish the opportunity to shrink and cuddle up with this apple on one of the corner stools. However, Vicky was a goddamn salesman, a good one at that. And this was a sale. You see, how fast do you think you wrote out that order ticket? He asked the woman for the second time. She'd tried to change the subject, but he hadn't let it go. A few seconds, sir. She responded. "'casting a baleful look back to the working women. "'It wasn't hard to see that they were all much younger than her "'and quite pretty to the number. "'The woman looked as though she'd been given her own treatment "'too many times over the decades. "'That is, washed and wrung out until all the color had gone out of her. "'Vicky sure wasn't helping in that department, "'but concern for an old woman's looks wasn't his job. "'Exactly, exactly, 29 seconds.' Vicky said, ticking out a clock with the tapping tips of his fingers on the tabletop between them. Every tenth talk, he rolled his fingers back and forth in an eighth-note arpeggio, up and down. He could almost feel the hair raising on the back of her neck. He pointed at her with his free hand, continuing the rhythm without a hiccup. The Blackwell Automatic Typewriter reduces the time of any piece of writing by up to 400%. That's all the way down and then some, ma'am. He grinned and tapped the tabletop twice, intentionally, arrhythmically, which kept her from slipping his little net. Beside him, the Blackwell sat tidy and dark in its carry case, polished up beforehand for just such an occasion. The price card sat back-facing between the second row of keys, a tidy bit of cardstock he'd written up himself that served as the grand finale to these pitches. "'It's... I don't mind,' she said, What is it? Is it really that fast? Vicky gave her his home-stretched smile, a rakish number he'd put together looking at pictures and magazines. It always felt too big, but looked just right in the mirror. Really, it felt like his eyes were going to pop out, but the only thing that mattered was the clothes. He plucked the price card from between the keys and set it face down on the table. The drumming had ceased. Neither of them could place when. Go ahead and try for yourself he said. Somebody walked in the door behind him, sending the little bell ringing. But he had eyes for nothing but this woman and what might lay in the sheet metal till beside her. She looked over the keys and pressed all the same ones as when she'd written up his receipt with glacial precision. Even with that delay tactic, she was still ahead by ten seconds. Didn't seem so fast, she said, taking a breath and raising her chin. He gave her that same grin, raised a quiet finger between them, and then pulled the paper free. Her dissatisfaction vanished into incredulity when he split the paper into three copies like a magician. The different sheets all showed the same neat, precise readout. Lord in heaven, how's that? Blackwell transfer paper, ma'am, he said, which we will give away for free with any order of a Blackwell automatic typewriter. All that together and you've got three copies of your receipt. One for the till, one for the customer, and one for your records. And all that done in a mere eighteen seconds. He took a satisfied breath. She was done. He had her. Now, ma'am, how much value would you put on this machine? Her eyes watched him tap at the price card. I don't know. A lot, I'd say. She said. You want a dollar amount? I'd like you to guess. For fun. She worked spit around in her mouth and crossed her arms. "'I'd say... three hundred, she said. "'Old used buggy set us back a hundred two years ago, "'and this thing's got maybe six times the metal in it as that flea wagon.' She caught herself, remembering he was an outsider. "'That's an expression, sir. We don't have no fleas here.' "'Yes, ma'am,' Vicky said. "'Well, I'm afraid to say you're way off the mark.' She sighed and nodded to herself. He flipped the card over. The Blackwell automatic typewriter can be yours today for just $100, he said. The woman took a breath and crossed her arms. Somebody was vying for attention behind them, but both the woman and Vicky ignored them. Business was being done, and this was American soil. All else could wait. How's it that low? She said. What's wrong with it? Nothing. And that's the point, Vicky said. Because of our expert machining processes, we see less waste and less overrun at Blackwell facilities, and we pass those savings on to you. Our competitors build their devices in bathtubs, ma'am. But we use state-of-the-art industrial machinery to put the technology of tomorrow in the hands of working-class people today. And that means hard-working Americans like yourself, ma'am. Americans, the woman muttered. She gave Vicky a look. I look American to you. You look like a woman with an eye for a dollar and a passion for not wasting time, Vicky said without missing a beat. Well, we ain't got that much on hand. She said, sighing. But if you got to Monday, we'll get into the bank and maybe figure it out. I can do you one better, Vicky said, slipping a stack of forms out from behind the typewriter. In fact, if you put just down $50 today, We've got a fair and equitable payment plan that'll let you own this machine like you've been saving up for it for decades. Payment plan? The woman asked, giving him a look. You talking usury? No, 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 he replied, waving his hands. It's all above board. As a representative of Blackwell Technologies, I am also a licensed broker of certain lines of credit. You have a thriving business, as I can see. They both looked around at that and... "'though neither seemed to quite believe it,' he continued. "'You merely telegram your monthly payments to your local post office and, "'in the unfortunate incident where you can't pay, a Blackwell collection agent, will pop out here to check on you and see how we can help you make good.'" <laughs> was all the woman said for a long while. "'But three more minutes and he had her signature at the bottom of the stack and fifty dollars in his pocket.'" He counted each greenback in a flash and vanished them as cleanly as he'd taken them. So, she said, when's this order going through? Are you going to run out to your train and bring one back? Because that's a lot of money, and I'd be more comfortable sending one of my boys with you to, well, help you carry it is a nice way of putting it. No, oh, ma'am, Vicky said with a smile, shifting the typewriter in front of her. This machine is yours to take off my hands right now. He pointed to the different compartments of the case. You'll have all you need to work the machine right here, including 100 sheets of the Blackwell transfer paper, a replacement ink ribbon, you'll be surprised how long you can use this thing until you need to replace that, and our introductory typing guide. I I suggest you put one of your kids or other workers to learning to type as well. If you don't mind that intrusion, it can be very convenient to have them use the typewriter for you. He chuckled and winked. Taking dictation from my boss is how I learned to type so good. Say again," she asked, and he cleared his throat. <clears> throat> well, <clears> throat> Vicky started. Now that he was past the close, he could feel the world getting smaller. The person behind him felt terribly insistent. He stuck his fingers into his pocket to keep them from tapping irregular nonsense on the tabletop between them. It's well, just convenient to have a second typist around. In 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 in. in any case, that typing manual serves as a a catalog where you can order replenishments for any Blackwell product. Just tear off the sheets in the back, fill them out, and mail them in. Or type them! (laughs) Um, He laughed, and she gave him a look like she was about to ask for a refund. You idiot. Well, I I can't thank you enough for your time, ma'am, Vicky said, dropping his hat on his head and giving it a tip. I'll be in town until, uh, until tomorrow, I think. So, just come find me if you need any help, okay? Alrighty, the woman said, looking over her new typewriter and trying to figure out where she'd keep the thing. Alrighty, good night. Good nighty, alrighty. Vicky said, almost sputtering when he tried to keep the words down. He felt his face go hot when the woman gave him a quizzical look and just spun to leave, hoping she'd think it was some idiotic city saying. Idiotic idiot. idiot, idiot, idiot. Mr. Victor Melanes, a man asked as he turned. This person was built like a city lamppost and stood nearly tall as one. Vicky shouted and stumbled backward. Lord, for good Christ, he mumbled in a hoarse whisper. Can I help you? He looked up at the man, still riding high enough on the sail to try glaring at him. It was pointless. The man didn't really seem to be looking at Vicky. His face was taut and thin, pulled back to the sides of the skull from the promontory of a long, pinched nose. Eyes bulged from that misabused tissue in two directions, Slara yellowed and shot through with veins. The irises were a cool shade of purple Vicky would have found pretty unliterally any other creature. Our town benefactor, Lord Belial, has heard you're going about doing sales of some unique equipment. The man continued. He wore a tight, white suit with heavy stitching and high, angular lapels. There was a crookedness to the man that Vicky couldn't quite fully blame on bad posture and worse tailoring. Is that um, illegal here or something? Vicky asked. Mr. Blackwell... Amon Blackwell? The man asked, his voice tumbling through the syllables. Y- yes Vicky said, taking a breath. He was fine. He didn't need to recite anything. He'd gotten a sail, a fucking sail, in this podunk flea ball, and he wasn't going to let this knock him off his stride. Still, given the trip so far... He had to admit coming out with just a basic typewriter case, assuming he'd be safe, was a bad idea. The special case was fully warranted out here, but with the Pinkertons and everything else, though he always felt nervous carrying it. With that thought, the 50 in his pocket, Mr. Blackwell's 50, seemed to itch a little. Mr. Amon Blackwell is well known to our Lord Belial the man said. His eyes shifted at once in opposing directions, both of them winding upwards to look at nothing. Your typewriters are immensely interesting to Lord Belial and he would like to proffer your wares at his estate. Ah, okay, Vicky said. He was actively pinching himself through his pocket liner at this point to keep from launching into his sales pitch. I'll make my way there then. You can't go now? The man asked. Vertebrae cracked in his neck as his head made for three o'clock. Vicky stuck a finger beneath his collar. It was certainly time to go back and get the appropriate case from the train. No typewriter, was all he managed to say. Very well. Very well. The man said. Could you collect your wares and come to the large house at the edge of town tonight? Say around nine. There was something distant in the man's voice, almost like it was coming from the far end of a tunnel. Vicky shrugged and nodded. Very good, the man said, his neck popping as he gave a polite bow and left. When he was gone, Vicky turned back to the woman he'd sold the typewriter to. But she and the typewriter and the till had gone. Left alone with the sounds of lapping water and hushed, womanly voices, Vicky cleared his throat one last time, and then left for the train. All right, all right, I'll read it, goddamn are you a fan of the West Side Fairy Tales podcast and my 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 story, Sin Carriers? Then take a second right now, pause this episode, and take a second to like it, comment on it, or share it on your favorite social media sites. This year, we're trying to grow the West Side Fairy Tales like never before, and we need your help to do it. So if you have just a second, use Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, whatever the hell, and share the West Side Fairy Tales with the world. And if you want, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and what have you. Just search Westside Fairy Tales or use the link in the episode's show notes. All right, that's it. I get you. Now, back to our program already in progress. Wickless smeared dirt across his face and damn near screamed when he felt the sweet, sour grit of oil and castor grease cross his lips. He spat and dug out a clean bit of shirt watching the hoity-toity parade of dresses and suits leaving the front parts of the train. He almost didn't recognize the little she-bitch amongst their number. Gussied up as she was, any unsuspecting man might be deceived into thinking she was the harmless, decent sort women ought to be. "'We should sneak up front while those ones are gone,' he said in a low voice, tilting his head toward Coakley for the man's benefit." The couplings between the cars squalled and clapped as Coakley finished tightening the rejoiner. He fitted the two thick lines of chain in place and shook his head, sweating worse even than Wickless and looking up the line at nothing in particular. How well, old's this fucking hoss anyhow, he mumbled. Fucking turnbuckle, piece of shit. He tossed the bar he'd used to tighten the coupling and Wickless watched it bounce around the ground. A fine thought crossed his mind heating up that bit of steel and burning the cross-dressing cunt between her legs. He smiled to himself and picked it up, reared back, and smacked a small stone out into the desert with it. "'You hear me? What I said?' he asked, looking back at Coakley. The man had slumped against one of the wheels and was dabbing at his face with the filthy hem of his shirt. Behind him, on the next spar, a team of their horses dragged the wagons they'd offloaded toward a warehouse. Wickless smacked another stone and Coakley flinched and looked at him. "'Yeah, I heard. Stop that. It's fucking ear-splitting,' he said, jamming a grease-blackened finger in his ear. Wickless smiled at him and hit another one, causing the man to flinch. "'Fine, yeah, no, I ain't doing that. We ought not go up there and poke around. "'Why not? Ain't like we'll steal nothing. Just look around some.' "'Yeah, okay.' Coakley said. Wickless smacked another rock and the man stood, rolling his shoulders and holding out his hand. Give me that or I'm leaving you to do the last coupling on your own. Wickless set the bar against his hip and chuckled, reaching into his jacket for a smoke. He lit one and handed the pack to Coakley, who thought about it and then waved them away. Wickless shrugged and picked up the bar. What are you worried about? He asked, looking over the length of metal. He liked the thought of that bitch crying on the ground underneath him. Squished like the bug she was, maybe she'd learned some goddamn respect. If she'd been any sort of specimen, those sorry-ass kicks she'd given him might have left more than a few nasty red marks. Still, the injury was all he could think about. "'You gonna get smacked around by them backenders? Coakley sniffed and looked away. You're always on that shit, he said, trying to get me worked up over nothing. Nothing? Wickless spat, turning and pointing a cigarette at Coakley. That woman kicked me like a dog over nothing. He moved the cherry to his cheek. Look at this. You were talking shit to her, Coakley almost shouted back. The work had exhausted them both and still wasn't done. Their lot would all be tired and grumpy until they got into town, got to drinking and tasting some local flesh. Wickless knew that, knew he wouldn't make headway with Coakley. But if the man stayed angry, he might forget about what, and then he'd be more amenable come time Wickless needed him. So she puts a boot to me, he said, shaking his head. I tell you, it's gonna be you next time, whipped and then put to by that little shit vart. Coakley sniffed and looked at the ground. I could see him try. He mumbled. Wickless grinned. So let's go up there and check what they got going on. Wickless said. Worst we'll do is snag a bottle from that kitchen they got up there. Cooking wine. Rich fucks always got cooking wine somewhere. My mama used cooking wine. Coakley said, giving Wickless an imperceptible look. He broke into a smile. I wouldn't mind having some cooking wine. Wickless mirrored Coakley's expression and started to speak, but felt a shiver run up his spine. You are talking about crimes, yes? Gatto said. Wicklis nearly jumped out of his skin when he saw the shadow of the Castellanos separate from the back of the horse carriage. A fat knife rolled over his fingers and popped up into the air when he flicked his wrist. I like crimes. Please. Tell me about yours. Coakley had scrambled to his feet and crossed the yard to join Wickless. He grabbed the bar from the smaller man and held it at his side. Mind your own fucking business, Mexican, he said. Gato gave them a hurt expression. I keep telling you people oh no soy mexicano," Gato replied. But well, you are all hard of hearing. That's common amongst common people. You can't hear well. He tapped his ear with the knife. He wasn't wearing the broad, straw hat Wickless was used to seeing him in. Without it, the man struck a truly imposing figure. His hair was long and straight and cut black lines down his face and throat. His eyes were no less dark, but seemed to catch the last red lights of the setting sun. He cocked his head, frowned, and dropped down onto the dirt in front of them. You can't hear my question, he asked. Light danced on the edge of his blade. Wickless felt Coakley's tension beside him. I know you are talking about crimes, and I want you to talk about them more. In front of me. You start, he pointed to Coakley. Coakley looked at Wickless, who tried to answer. It's... Dust rose from the dirt beside his right foot, and he knew it was the knife before he even registered Gato had thrown it. Wickless looked down and saw it buried halfway to its hilt in the rough desert soil, less than an inch from his big toe. You do not listen, Gato said. I asked him, so he answers. Gato loomed over them now, possibly less than half their combined weight but freakishly tall I i was just joking Coakley finally said I just wanted it's nothing he sighed and looked away like a whipped child Wickless thought he might be sick see you weren't even talking about crimes then Gato said bending at his waist and pointing at Coakley's face you are a boy whose friends get him in trouble But if you behave and mind yourself, I think you will be fine. Seconds passed before Gato turned his attention to Wickless. You, though, you are a boy I have met many times. He grinned. When I was a little peasant boy, there was one who would sneak into girls' houses while they worked and smell their beds. He would take their menses rags off the drying lines and stuff them in his pants. Gato pointed at Wickless, so close he had to make a snake of his arm to do so. This boy is you. Wickless snarled and slapped at the holster on his hip, but all he touched was leather. Gato's eyes were the moon, it seemed now. Two bloody moons floating over the train behind him. Wickless felt himself go cold and heard a light whistling in his ears as Gato raised the stolen gun between them. The Castellano smiled. One day, this boy, he found a sick girl. And instead of smelling her mattress, he smelt her. Gato said in a low voice. She woke up when he decided he wanted more than just a little smell. Don't move. Gato leaned down so close Wickless could feel the man's body heat through his clothes could smell the straw-tick dustiness of him, sweat, blood beneath that, sweet and metallic. Gato pulled the knife he had thrown out of the ground and dragged it up his own thigh. Using his thumb to pull up the edge of his poncho, he revealed a stretch of pale brown skin and a dozen leather scabbards all full of heavy knives. Steel scratched the soft lambskin as he slid the blade back home. She beat him with her fists and cut away his penis with sheep shears, Gatto said. He dragged the pistol barrel up Wickless's leg and then over his stomach, scraping it across the gun belt and then slamming it down into the holster. Wickless gasped, gritted his teeth. You try not to lose your little pistol again, okay? And don't talk about crimes. I am bored right now. He pointed to the moon, which hung low and fat over the distant hills. You should go into town and drink to the moon, he said. She is beautiful tonight, and I do not think many of us will ever see her again in such glory. With that, he gave a slight tilt of his head to the men and returned to the shadows thickening about the train cars. Bubbles flecked the glass and the liquid inside, warping the water-whipped kerosene shadows that fell across his hand in the soft table wood. At the root of that arm, beneath the water... The man, Garvey, had curled his body snake-like to gather all his flesh beneath the scrim of bathing waste. It eddied about his face, just below the eyes, and around his arm. He felt the rough echoes of the dragging glass as he slid it off the table. His tongue slid out and guided the rim to his lips. Garvey needed, wanted, only the muted rumble of water in his ears here in this bath. Iceless whiskey burned his throat, and he let the emptied glass sink into the water with him, up to his eyes. Further, his irises were black dots lost amongst the scrim of filth and oily gray suds, the meridian between this world and his airless paradise. The washerwoman opened the door, which he felt in the base of the tub, and he rose from the water. "'Only the steady dripping from his body let her know he was there. "'She screamed when she saw him and tripped into the door. "'He smiled. "'Lord!' she said. "'I knocked, sir, and then I didn't see you.' "'The woman looked him over and blushed, averting her eyes. "'Garvey took the last pitcher from beside the basin and poured it over himself. "'Heat drew away the scrim of grease and made him feel truly naked.' I'll excuse myself. The woman tried to dart out the door. Hey now, Garvey said, voice loud enough to make the woman jump. Bring me that towel there first. He pointed to what he wanted even though she wouldn't look at him. It took repeating himself in a gruffer voice to get her to hop to the task. She brought it over pinched between two fingers, eyes still looking away from him. Wrap it around me. Sir, she pleaded. Uh, wait, I'm not that sort of woman. Her arm shook. I could send up one of the other girls if that's what you want. Just do it how I said. Garvey said, not even looking at her. A few seconds later, he could feel errant strands of her hair brushing his flank as she obeyed. That's well done. Excuse me, sir. She said, rushing toward the door. Where do you think you're going? He almost shouted after her, but she'd slammed the door shut and was stomping off down the hall. Close, but no cigar. Warm dampness lingered in the fresh clothes she'd brought him. His own threads, sure enough, but so clean now they looked different. Garvey relished the wetness of the cloth against his skin thought of his mother laying twisted in old bedsheets in defilement. Beneath the greater noises of the inn, he thought he could hear those old, mournful swamp birds singing dirges to her. Merely a dream. He went downstairs. The other drivers drank and gambled amongst themselves, the sparse crowd of older men in the bar giving every loudness a sideways glance. Wickless made the most noise, because of course he did. Holding court and doing his best to excite the others. Words just shy of outright racism and little biblical excuses peppered his endless nattering. Garvey felt a touch of respect for Wickless's methods, if not the man. He'd always found religion made fine seed for deception, and often bore the fattest fruits in his own exploits. Wickless danced around his intentions like a tornado circling a drain. He never quite touched on exactly what he meant, but everybody arrived at the point all the same. He glutted their empty minds on pithy sayings and saccharine nostalgia for better days they never lived, and they ate happily from that trough. Even some of the Grey Boys seemed to like what Wickless was selling. Disgraceful showings, by any measure, but none of Garvey's concern. Wickless had a proper fear of the man Garvey. A good, deep fear, which kept him wary, distant, and respectful. And as far as Garvey was concerned, the boy could do as he wanted so long as he understood Moira remained off-limits. Whether the boy knew it or not, he was in the company of another predator. A more lithe, much older taster of flesh. One who, most importantly... "'understood the breadth of their own nature "'and the natures of those other animals "'who hunted this deep forest. "'He'd followed Wicklis on his little quarries, "'took in his gratifications and the accompanying sins. "'Nothing special. "'Little girls were his most common desire, "'and he had no predilections for looks or disposition. "'Merely availability. "'Some, most actually, he left alive.' though that number had dwindled. Perhaps now he desired to partake of mature pork, to rape and render at the adult table. Garvey watched him carrying on and thought, perhaps not. Hello there, a tired-eyed woman said, sidling up to sit beside him. She had all the markings of a whore, but none of the feel. Curiously, He felt a kindred energy not inside of, but on her, as though her very presence bore the tool marks of a better craftsman. Garvey failed to react and the woman put her hand on his and smiled, pushing the con. How you doing? Well enough, Garvey said, raising two fingers to the bartender. The creaking old man brought over a bottle of whiskey and poured his order. Garvey took his and pushed one to the lady. She swallowed, looked at the amber liquid, and then took a drink. You knew it, this? The woman almost spit her whiskey. No, she said, giving him an incredulous look. The bartender seemed to hover nearby. Garvey narrowed his eyes at the man and then gestured for him to come closer. Sir? The bartender asked. Garvey snatched the bottle out of his hands and dropped a ten on the counter. Make yourself scarce, boy, Garvey said, even though the man looked twice Garvey's age. The bartender rankled, but relented, and retreated to sulk at the far end of the bar. The makeshift whore took a breath and kept her eyes low, taking the shot glass in hand. I'll have another, if you don't mind, the woman said in a quiet voice. He filled her glass and raised up her chin with his other finger. She shied away from his touch, but didn't leave the seat. She took the drink and seemed to see something on the other side of the room. Then she gave him a quick, friendly smile and rubbed the back of his hand again. So, y'all are leaving in a few days? She asked. She didn't have the guile to hide the deeper question. He poured her another. Trying to skip town, he asked. He asked. "'leaning in and rubbing his nose along her neck. "'She shivered, but he grabbed her thigh and whispered in her ear. "'If somebody's watching you, you'd better play along.' "'Breath shuddering, she leaned into him. "'Their faces touched, her peach-fuzz softness catching "'and being scratched by his sun-leathered skin. "'Yes,' she whispered. "'It's... if y'all can leave sooner, you should.' That's so, he asked, lifting her on top of his leg. Her thighs squeezed around him, trying to keep him from pushing harder against her. I believe you. She relaxed, though just a bit. You in some kind of danger. We all are, she whispered, letting her fingers disappear into his hair. Ooh, good on you, Garvey. Wickless shouted from the table in the middle. Garvey withered him with a glance, but he used the excuse to look around. He saw nothing but the old men, felt nothing but the woman and the drink, and the call. His mind drifted to an image of the lonely woodpile sitting dark on the flatbed inside the foundry. Men moved around it, their faces flat and formless. No less shadowed than what lie between and beyond the motionless boards. His heart rose and sank like the tide, just thinking of the pile. He wouldn't leave here without it, he knew. How about we go somewhere private? The woman asked him, loud enough the bartender could hear. Garvey saw the man approaching, but decided against warning him away. He'd let the woman play this how she wanted. He said nothing, but nodded to her and she turned to the bartender with a finger in the air. The man brought a key and set it silently on the bar. "'Where are we going?' Garvey asked with a wry smile. The woman hesitated and then gave him a small kiss on the lips. The display seemed to soothe the bartender's concern, and the old man turned his attention back to Wickless and the other idiots. All the bar's other customers seemed to be focused on them as well. Garvey felt a trill of excitement run through his body. Just follow me, the woman said, leading him into a hallway behind the bar full of doors to individual rooms. She unlocked one, looked around inside, and then quickly shut and relocked it. Garvey pursed his lips, but followed all the same as she walked through another hallway and down a set of stairs into a dusty cellar. Tools of many shapes and purposes dangled with chains, hooks, and ropes in the ceiling rafters. Beyond these rusted hangings, he could see the light and dust falling through the floorboards where Wickless and the crew were sitting. Wonderful, Garvey said to himself. What's that? The woman asked. When she turned around, Garvey was folding his shirt over the back of a crudely made rocking chair. She swallowed and smoothed her skirts looking around the basement. Her outfit was trashy pink and black lace with skirts cut a hand's breadth above the knee. So why'd you bring me down here? Garvey said, boxing her in against a pillar. She took a breath and gave him a direct look. To... to talk, she said. Regret and desperation jockeyed against each other in her expression. To negotiate. "'Garby said. "'Resignation went out, and she pinched at her clothes. "'You want out on the train with me, right?' "'Yes,' she said. "'Yes, sir,' he replied, taking her chin in hand. "'Don't fire me now.' "'She obeyed him, though he could feel her body shaking like a caught rabbit, "'which is how he wanted her. "'But there was a first tonight.' After so many decades of nights like these, he could smell her fear. It was acrid and enticing, promising, like paper on a boxed-up present. "'You say, sir, and ask me a favor. "'Please, sir, will you take me What? He stabbed her in the liver, just beneath the ribcage, pulling the knife free and watching her face go through every realization.' The strike had been perfect. She could barely take a breath and in a second was falling to the floor. "What what did you?" she asked, barely able to speak. It seemed the thought of screaming for help never crossed her mind, but that wasn't his concern. Garvey caught her and laid her out, cutting away her clothes in a way that scored the flesh of her torso. Her eyes searched the dusty ceiling above her as his mouth suckled at her breasts, her stomach, and the bleeding hole in her belly. She died with his face dripping onto hers, dipping down and stroking her throat to forehead with his bloody tongue. Revealed. As our travelers delve deeper into this town, they'll find they can no longer ignore what motivated them to flee the West in the first place. Like a rainstorm in the desert, sudden and unexpected, they may be washed away by their own pasts. Next time on Sin Carriers, Tolliver dreams darkly of his hidden desires and ends up embarrassing himself in the process. The enigmatic Lord Belial makes his appearance at his introductions, leading Sue, Vasily, Tolliver, and Moira into his bizarre mansion. Back on the train, Ducky speaks with Gato about a cat he once knew. Their conversation is brought to a close by the appearance of strange clouds and stranger creatures on the horizon. In Belial's home, Vasily soon finds himself lost in both the queerness of the structure and the memories of his past. In town, four members of the driving crew find the locals much less welcoming as the night goes on. And in the desert, a rider approaches. What are Lord Belial's plans for our travelers and what greater dangers might his town hold? Are they worse than what's steadily approaching from the desert? Or is the most deadly thing stewing in a mess of its own making in a dark and lonely basement? You may find the answers to these questions and more in episode 9 of Sin Carriers Party. And until next time, as always, stay safe out there. west side fairy tales is written scored and produced by tyler bell in louisville kentucky audio processing mastering and original foley provided by wsf productions llc episode art by Huey Breedlove. all content here in copyright 2022 wsf productions llc